Hello and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Aaron. I'm Kate. And we will be learning about national anthems. Each week we will choose a new country at random. We will learn a little bit about this country and then we will listen to their anthem. After learning, we will rate the anthem based on several criteria and see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. We don't want you to think because of the title that we're huge fans of O Canada. In fact, we plan to dunk on it pretty much constantly over the course of the show, and we do not expect it to finish highly in the rankings at all. That being said, <laughs> we are going to be talking today about an anthem that I love. Okay. I love the Argentinian anthem. I think it's fantastic. Do the Argentinian people love it too? Yes, I think. Okay. As far as I can tell, yeah, it's, it's one of the more widely performed ones we've looked at, but we've got a whole lot of stuff to talk about Okay. before we get into that. <laughs> So let's start by just addressing the sort of location and geography of Argentina. And the fact that we're doing Spain next week. Yeah, <laughs> that'll be an adventure. Uh, the The history of Argentina, though, is is really heavily shaped by a lot of its geography. So I think it's important to get into first. Uh, so Argentina is the world's eighth largest country. It covers a lot of the southern portion of South America. Uh, so if you picture that like long southern tail of the continent, mm -hmm. the the east two thirds or so, I would say, are Argentina, whereas the west is Chile. Okay, I think one of the things about South America, at least in my you know limited understanding, is that like I kind of know about the countries that are there, but I don't know where they are. Yeah. So Argentina is bordered, as I said, by Chile to the west and south, uh, the very southern tip of the. Uh, continent is a small set of islands known as the Tierra del Fuego Archipelago, and that is modern day, I believe it is split between Chile and Argentina. Okay. Uh, so Chile to the west and south, uh, Bolivia, Paraguay, and Brazil to the north, and Uruguay to the northeast. Uh, the South Atlantic Ocean covers most of the country's, well, I guess the entire east coast of the country, not the entire east border of the country. Right, okay. Um, Near the southern tip. So right right down near the tip of the continent, you can picture sort of a little curve on the east side. Mm -hmm. Just out from that curve are the Falkland Islands, which are contested territory that Ar Argentina claims but does not own. Okay. Uh, so the border between Argentina and Chile is 6,691 kilometers long and is the third largest continuous land border on Earth. Sorry, say that number again. 6,691 kilometers. Jeez. So the only two land borders on Earth longer than this one are Kazakhstan, Russia, and of course, Canada, U.S. I was going to ask if it was Canada, U.S. Which yeah. clocks in at a mind-boggling 8,893 kilometers. Wow, okay. So Argentina-Chile as a border, just to put this in perspective too, is significantly longer than the China-Mongolia border, than the India-Bangladesh border, and more than twice the length of Mexico-U.S., which runs 3,155. Oh, that's incredible. So, yeah, the, the amount of land that runs between Chile and Argentina is phenomenal. Like, 
just just to put that in perspective. And the the Ar- the Argentinian geography can really be understood as being made up of four major parts. So the the biggest one I think is Patagonia and that can really be considered as everything south of the Colorado River. And that's a large region that's largely empty. There's a lot of desert and then closer to where because the nation is essentially right across from Antarctica and Mm -hmm. actually we're not going to get into this but they actually claim a stretch of Antarctica that no one really recognizes as being theirs um but uh Patagonia there's a lot of desert and then when you get closer down to to that Antarctic tip of it it's it's going to look really familiar to people who have seen a lot of pictures of northern Canada okay what's the climate like in Argentina uh, like quite temperate towards the north, mm-hmm. but then as I'm saying, there's, there's a lot of desert in Patagonia and then getting down into Antarctic. It's so confusing there. to me to think about South being cold. Yes. Yeah. Cause it, it does take a bit of a reversal when you start getting into Antarctic regions. Cause here we're always like, Oh, up North, they get all that snow and like I'm going South for the winter, that kind of thing. But yeah. Interesting. Okay. So the, uh, the Southern Andes are the the part of the Southern Andes that are within Patagonia are often considered part of Patagonia, as is the Argentinian section of the Tierra del Fuego archipelago that we talked about. And this has nothing to do with the coat company. No, okay. no. The uh, in fact, we'll we'll get into where the name comes from a bit later. It's it's really surprising that to me that it's still called this. <laughs> Um, so the next region is really the Andes region itself. So the Southern Andes mountain range runs along most of the Western edge of the country for the purposes of this discussion. Like the, the Andes mountain range, mountain range is the biggest continental mountain range on earth. It's fucking enormous. Like it basically runs parallel to the entire Western coast of South America. So, they're they're generally understood as being split into north, central, and southern divisions. So for the purposes of this episode, when I talk about the Andes, I'm talking about the southern Andes. Okay. Central and northern will not factor into our discussion. So, and when I'm talking about the Andes region in Argentina, I'm talking about the parts of the southern andes that are not in patagonia okay <laughs> are we are we all on track here i mean i need a map probably but i understand what you're saying we'll take a look at one on the break okay uh so the next region is the the northern region which is of course of course in the north uh it contains a lot of rivers and lowlands one of its main provinces is confusingly named mesopotamia uh oh no even though yeah like mesopotamia is way the hell over in the middle east as as we generally understand it yeah uh and then the fourth region that makes up the these big geographical regions of Argentina is the Pampas region. And that's a lot of central Argentina. It's a like vast grasslands divided into a, an arid region and a humid region, which are known really uncreatively as the dry Pampas and <laughs> the humid Pampas. Cool. So nice and easy to keep track of. <laughs> there is really not a lot of information to be found on the peoples of Southern Argentina in particular prior to European contact. These were 
you know, not necessarily completely nomadic peoples, but very simple hunter-gatherer lifestyle sort of peoples. The largest ruin we have in, I think, anything but the far north of Argentina is a place called Quilmes, which is about 30 hectares and housed maybe 5,000 people at its absolute height. Okay. Like, we're these are not... Kilmez is a nice enough looking place, but these are not grand monuments. It's builders. not the pyramids or yeah. anything like that. Okay. However, a lot of northwestern Argentina would get incorporated into the Incan Empire in the 15th century, and really in the late 15th century, I believe. But by the early 16th century, it would become incorporated into an Inca state that was known as Tawantinsuyu, or the Realm of the Four Parts. Mm. Uh, I, I couldn't really find any explanation on what the four parts were. Okay. <laughs> but uh, this realm encompassed parts of modern day Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. Okay. Uh, it was in this same period of the early 16th century that the Europeans would begin to discover uh, what is known as the Rio de la Plata estuary. And the importance of the Rio de la Plata estuary to Argentina really cannot be overstated. It, it kind of is right where the, the north and the Pampas meet, probably a little north of the Pampas. But uh, the, it's, it's where the Paraguay and the Parana River meet to form this huge estuary some people call it a river, some people call it a freshwater sea, some people call it an estuary, but the it's it's known as the Rio Plata. Okay. Um the the Flat River? The Plate River. Oh, the Plate River. All right. Um the Parana is the second longest river in South America after the Amazon, running nearly 5,000 kilometers. And the Paraguay River, uh, I don't think it quite rates that highly, but it's nothing to shake a stick at either. Like, these are huge rivers that lead way inland. Huh. Um, and they're they're right on this huge, like, freshwater opening to the Atlantic. That's so cool. So, the uh, this is really where a lot of Europeans would start to discover what is now Argentina and there uh, are there are a few expeditions that claim to be the first to have discovered the the Rio de la Plata estuary um Amerigo Vespucci claimed to have gone there on his second voyage in 1501 that is not the same as the first one where he discovered Guyana mm. uh Another guy named Juan Diaz de Solis definitely got there in 1516, and his party decided to sail up the Paraguay River, where they were almost immediately killed and eaten, except for a couple guys <laughs> who escaped and went back to Spain to tell their story. E One eaten by people? By indigenous people. Okay, of the region. okay. Yes. Just clear that it's not like a crocodile ambush. To be honest, I, I would be entirely unsurprised to learn that they weren't actually eaten and just killed, and the, That's what they the said Spanish afterwards. people said they were eaten. Yeah. Uh, however, there was a kid who I think was like 15 or 16 at the time, probably like a cabin boy of some sort on this ship, mm -hmm. who the, the indigenous peoples did not kill. They took mm. him prisoner. 
And this kid's name is Francisco Del Puerto. So just remember his name because it's going to come up again in a really weird way in a okay. little bit. Uh, so one of the ships that escaped would later actually crash along the coast of Brazil, where they started hearing rumors from locals. And these are like one of the ships that escaped from Solis's disastrous e- expedition. Mm-hmm. Uh, So they crashed along the coast of Brazil and they heard this rumor from locals about this great wealth of silver in land. So they're being led by this guy named Alexo Garcia and they traveled across a lot of the continents searching for this wealth of silver and became, as far as I could tell, reasonably well known with the locals in their travels. Did they find it? Well, (laughs) at a certain point in their expedition, they had found some silver okay and they were known to all these people as as these europeans on their grand expedition for for the mountain of silver for sierra de la plata as they called it or or the mountain of plates right plate is in reference to plates of silver right okay okay so Because this legend, this is how I understood it. I might be understanding this a bit wrong, but because this legend precedes them as the guys who were hunting for the mountain of silver Mm -hmm. and they had some silver, natives killed them, took their silver, and then the legend spread that they had found it somewhere. Okay. (laughs) So that's just spreading among the locals at the time. And Ferdinand Magellan would decide to sail to the area in 1520, but he did not sail inland like Solis. Instead, he sailed all the way down the east coast of South America to the Tierra del Fuego archipelago, where he sailed the famous Strait of Magellan, Mm. uh, which is in the Tierra del Fuego archipelago. Uh, the uh, Tehuelche people who were living in Patagonia at the time were described by Magellan's explorers as like massive, terrifying beast men. Like I didn't find actual quotes, but I imagine they are horrifically racist. I, yeah, can only imagine. So, wasn't there? Sorry, isn't there that thing about when the Spanish people came to? I don't know, the Aztecs or something. And they were riding horses and the there's this like story about how the the indigenous people thought that they were like different creatures that like centaur people made of horse and person like fused together until they figured it out but i don't know if it's true i think it's more likely that that's a fun story that the spanish told themselves afterwards to make themselves feel like gods that's that's fair uh <laughs> there's there's no shortage of those stories for sure. But uh the reason I bring this up uh is because Magellan would end up comparing these people to Patagon, who was a monster from a Spanish novel at oh, the time no. with the head of a dog. And that is where the region of Patagonia got its name. Jeez. That it still has. Um. Magellan would not survive the entire voyage, but the survivors of Magellan's voyage uh, on their return home to Spain had completed the first circumnavigation of the world. Oh, good for them. Sebastian Cabot arrived in 1526 
and explored inland to a lot more success than Solis's expedition had seen. Uh, he even ended up rescuing Francisco del Puerto, <laughs> now a fully grown adult who had been living with the natives for 10 years. Del Puerto told Cavett of these rumors he had heard from the locals about a white king who lived upstream on the Piranha on a mountain of silver. Oh, no. It just kept ballooning, didn't it? <laughs> I, I couldn't find anyone exactly saying that that's what happened, but mm -hmm. that's how I like to imagine it happened. So that's the story we're going to go with, is that the same expedition that put Del Puerto there in the first place created these legends that then trickled down to him and then trickled down to Cabot and the rest of Spain. So... Not only these legends, but another another set of legends started to make their way back to Spain about the magical city of the Caesars. And this is essentially El Dorado. Yeah. It's a city rich in gold and diamonds and magic somewhere in okay. the desert of Patagonia. Cabot would start searching the continent for these magical places, but ultimately his coastal base would be wiped out in 1529. So... In the 1530s, Spain is starting to see some success with Francisco Pizarro's conquest of the Inca Empire and of modern-day Peru. So, really, this is the fall of the Inca Empire right now. What parts of Argentina were included in the Inca Empire were there for probably about 50 years. That's why we're glossing so quickly over the Incas this episode. That's Peru's territory. I'm sure we will have time to get into the Incas later. <laughs> But uh, encouraged by this success and also threatened by the success they're seeing Portugal have nearby in Brazil, mm -hmm. they decide to send another expedition out to the Rio de la Plata area under Pedro de Mendoza. And he would found a colony called Santa Maria del Buen Air or Our Lady Saint Mary of the Good Air, which will, down the line, become Buenos Aires, the modern capital oh, yeah. of Argentina. Mendoza would die shortly after founding the colony in 1537, but the colony remained and began scouting up the two rivers from the Rio Plata. So again, that's the Piranha and the Paraguay. Uh, Domingo Martinez de Irala sailed up the Paraguay River and founded Asuncion in 1537, and that is the modern-day capital of Paraguay. Hmm. The settlers of Buenos Aires would actually abandon it in 1541, and most of them would move to Asuncion, which would soon become a major base for the Spanish conquest. However, Buenos Aires would be reestablished in 1580. I mean, it would be uncharitable, I think, to refer to the conditions imposed on the natives by the Spanish colonizers as slavery, but I think serfdom would be something that nobody could really object to. Like, these are not good conditions that the Spanish natives are being, or sorry, the the uh, indigenous peoples are being put under. Like, in when Argentina, is it ever? In Argentina. Uh, but as the region is colonized through the 16th and 17th centuries, it's made part of the Viceroyalty of Peru. And at this point in time, the Viceroyalty of Peru can essentially be understood as everything Spain owns in South America. Okay. It will get divided up more over time as they get more shit and can't really have it all under one administration. Mm -hmm. 
through the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, Buenos Aires, Cordoba, and San Miguel de, de Tucumán, I believe more commonly known just as Tucumán, mm. uh, all become major centers of regional political power and trade. By the late 18th century, though, Buenos Aires has really emerged as a national center. Its place, it is directly on the Rio Plata, uh, and it became a central location then for early transatlantic trade. Uh, on August the 1st, 1776, just a few weeks after the signing of the American Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. fun fact, just uh, July 4th, uh, Spain creates the Viceroyalty of the Rio de la Plata, the final of several divisions of the Viceroyalty of Peru. So they divided up, they divided it up a few times, but this is the final division they would make to it. This Viceroyalty includes what is now Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, and parts of Bolivia. Uh, Buenos Aires was the capital of the Viceroyalty. Spain wanted to grant a little bit more autonomy to these regions so they could protect themselves in the event of an attack an attack from Portuguese Brazil to the <laughs> north. <laughs> Not out of any sort of, like, kindness of their heart. They yeah. just didn't want to lose their shit. <laughs> it's not our problem. It's your problem. So in 1806, the British and the Spanish are actually at war and British ships are repelled from the port of Buenos Aires in two separate battles. And in 1808, the British are actually fighting on what was interesting to me is it seems like a really early proxy war with Napoleon mm. on Spanish soil. So the the British are supporting uh, the exiled Ferdinand the Seventh, who is the the king who has been exiled by France, mm-hmm. and Napoleon has put his own brother Joseph Bonaparte on the throne of Spain. So France is supporting obviously Joseph Bonaparte. Britain is supporting Ferdinand, and support in the American colonies is mainly with Ferdinand as well. Uh, so in Buenos Aires, though, they took advantage of this political situation to a certain ancient law that stated that in the American colonies, if in the absence of a king, they had the right to govern themselves. Okay. Which is one of those laws that you feel like was signed in with the intention to never exercise it. Yeah. But they took their chance and and they seized it. Uh, the municipal council in of Buenos Aires would declare in 1810 that they were administering the government of the Viceroyalty autonomously, pending the restoration of Ferdinand. This would become known as the May Revolution. Uh, When Ferdinand was restored in 1814, international power was greatly weakened in Spain. They just didn't have the resources to do all the shit they were doing beforehand. Mm. And he really struggled to take effective control of his American colonies back. So in 1816, representatives from across the Viceroyalty would meet and declare the independent United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata. Paraguay had already declared itself independent at this point and exempted itself from the agreement. Spain's forces were not completely eliminated from the continent at this point, but they were mainly a threat in Peru and were mainly handled by people in that region. Notably, Simón de Bolívar is fighting the Spanish in Peru during this period, so we're going to talk a 
whole lot more about Bolivar during a whole bunch of South American nations, notably Peru, Colombia, Venezuela, and Bolivia, which is obviously named after him. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, he's an enormously important guy, and we're not going to get into him today other than to say that the fighting of the Spanish in South America is is mainly handed over to Bolivar and other revolutionaries in Peru at the time. Okay. So in 1820, uh, Buenos Aires would declare their sovereignty over the Falkland Islands. We talked about these in the geography mm -hmm. earlier on. These are uh, East and West Falkland, just off the east coast of Patagonia. They had been spotted originally by either the British or the Dutch. It, they'll fight over who did it first. Uh, and the Spanish and the British had squabbled over the islands for the better part of a century. Mm -hmm. But neither nation had a presence there in 1820. The British still had an official claim on the, the region. So the Buenos Aires government is starting to take a stronghold over what will become modern-day Argentina at this point, but their grip on the northern provinces is not as strong. Bolivia would declare independence from the United Provinces in 1825, and the road to Bolivian independence is not so simple as all this. In fact, it seems way more complicated than this, and that's exactly why we're not going to get into it here. Yeah, that's okay. I didn't realize how early some of these countries got their independence. Yeah. I think I assumed it happened more like it did for many of the African countries we looked at. But I guess more in, like in a historical context, like, why, why would it have? Yeah, there's no reason. Yeah. There's no reason. I just assumed, because that's, I guess, how this, again, just the layers of ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> so, aggravating the fact that these provinces are starting to try to break out on their own, Brazilian forces are starting to move into the province known as uh, Cisplatina, north of the Rio Plata. Uh, Cisplatina had long been contested territory between the Spanish and Portuguese empires in America, and later between the Empire of Brazil and the United Provinces of Rio de la Plata. Okay. Uh, so this move by Brazil to claim it would later lead to war in 1825. In 26, there is a constitutional assembly in Tucumán. This constitution names the country Argentina, but it is immensely unpopular, and the leader who proposed it is going to be deposed pretty soon, so that doesn't really stick right now. This war continued until 1828, when leadership of Buenos Aires was given to Colonel Manuel Dorego, and Dorego made a comp compromise with Brazil, where the disputed land became the independent state of Uruguay rather than becoming the property of either nation. So that is where Uruguay comes from. Mm. Uh, when the armies returned from the war, they immediately overthrew and executed Dorego. Okay. Which, I mean, can you blame them? No. Like, <laughs> it's not necessarily a laudable thing to do, but they've been fighting this war for a few years, and he immediately was just like... How about neither of us gets it? <laughs> I can see why they were so frustrated, yeah. is all I'm saying. Yeah. So after a year of sort of fighting and succession crisis, Durego's biggest six supporter, uh, Juan, Man Juan Manuel de Rosas, would be made governor in 1829. And for three years, de Rosas is an immensely popular and seemingly quite reasonable governor. Uh, 
he eventually hands the government over to his successor. However, that successor is not popular and is quite quickly overthrown mm-hmm. again. Uh, the people give the government back to DeRosa's and essentially make him a dictator with sweeping <laughs> upgrades to the powers of the office okay. and an extension of term from, I believe, three years to six years. He names the country at this point the Argentine Republic. We will talk a little bit later about how that name gains popularity. Uh, in 1831, the Buenos Aires government arrests U.S. ships for seal hunting off the coast of the Falklands. The U.S. retaliates by destroying the Argentine settlement on East Falkland. In 1833, Britain takes this chance to reclaim the Falklands, expelling the remaining Argentinians without firing a shot. Why are the Falklands so desirable? I don't know, to be honest. I'll look into that over the break. Okay. Because if it's just like another frozen rock... (coughs) I think it is maybe just like to have that refueling station and everything in yeah, the middle of the it is kind ocean. Of strategic. But, uh, That's true. The late 1830s are a turbulent time where we'll see wars with Peru and Bolivia, as well as major trade disputes with Uruguay and France that would lead to a French backed rebellion. Mm-hmm. France was eventually though forced to support it or to abandon its support of the rebellion and De Rosa's put it down with the help of his friend Manuel Oribe, who was one of the fathers of Uruguayan independence and had recently been deposed as president. Uh, when De Rosa's complete power, or with De Rosa's, sorry, complete power again established over the country, Oribe's army would then launch a campaign against Uruguay to reclaim his seat as president. Uh, in 1843, Oribe would begin a nine-year siege of Montevideo, which is the capital of Uruguay. Uh, Though the British and French would first back the Montevideo government, De Rosas would end up negotiating a treaty with both nations that made it look... uh, that made them back out of the conflict and made it look like Oribe's victory was all but certain at that point. Uh, However, in 1851, eight years into this siege, one of De Rosa's generals by the name of Justo José de de Urquiza would ally with Montevideo and Brazil to orchestrate a rebellion. This would force De Rosa's to abandon his support of Uribe at the siege of Montevideo and would eventually force him out of office and out of the country uh, and would end... Uh, ultimately, this this meant that Oribe's siege of Montevideo did not have the support it needed to continue and was not successful. Nine years is a long time, though. A long time. Like, I lived through two years of a pandemic, and that's already like, geez, stop already. I can only imagine. <laughs> Nine years of a siege? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. In 1853, Urquiza's government adopted a new constitution that would be rejected by Buenos Aires because this constitution made Paraná the capital of the nation. Hmm. Uh, And it was seen by many as too powerfully centralist. So centralism versus federalism, I'm not going to get into it too deep, but it is one of the defining political struggles of Argentine history. That is to say, whether all the power is is with this one president or whatever, or whether we're a collection of provinces with equal mm-hmm. rights and claims and, and all that. Okay. So 
that's that's really one of the defining political struggles throughout the whole history of the country. That's a complicated struggle to have. Uh, in 1859, Urquiza would revise the Constitution to make concessions to Federalists while also working to take Buenos Aires back by military force. Mm. In 1862, a concession was made stating that hostilities would end, but the governor of Buenos Aires, a guy named Bartolome Mitra, would become president and Buenos Aires would become capital of the country. Uh, from 1865 to 1870, Argentina was allied with Brazil and Uruguay against Paraguay in the War of the Triple Alliance. Uh, so many things this episode that like <laughs> I want to get into in more depth. Uh, it's something we are going to discuss a lot, I think, in our episode on Paraguay. But it is the deadliest conflict in Latin American history with estimates wow. as high as half a million casualties between Jeez. both sides. I didn't even know about it. So the war was started when Paraguay declared war on Brazil, but in uh, and the alliance was started there. But international favor really started to tip against Argentina as the war went on, and Mitra was seen as simply taking the opportunity to conquer all of Paraguay. Sorry, what year is this again? Uh, this is 1865 to 1870. This okay. war happens. They have a like it's it's dense in this 1800s. Oh yeah. Kind of a time. Okay. A lot of change, though. Yeah. Internationally, yeah. This war would be utterly devastating to Paraguay. It cannot be overstated how devastating this war was to Paraguay. Between Argentina and Brazil uh, and the claims they made, Paraguay would lose nearly 150,000 square kilometers of land. Wow. Their population would be reduced by well over half going from 525,000 people before the war to about 225,000 people afterwards, with estimates claiming that fewer than 30,000 adult men were still living in the country at the end of the war. That's barely anything. Did people move back or did they stay? I, I think a lot of that is dead. Like, oh, like I said, this is right utter yeah. devastation okay. i thought maybe like when they drew the borders again that might be part of it but yeah okay that's that's everyone basically yeah that's, okay that's gonna be a fun episode so yeah. the early 1870s are a difficult time economically for the country and the military would begin to consolidate power eventually leading to general julio argentino roca being made president and Roca was seen for a really long time, probably more than a century, as kind of a George Washington-esque founding father of Argentina. Okay. I'd say from what I saw people talking about, probably since the 90s, uh, opinion has started to shift towards what he probably deserves. We're seeing statues torn down. We're seeing streets that were named after him renamed. Mm -hmm. We saw his face removed from the currency. What did uh, do? During the time of Roca's presidency, the government was involved in an ongoing conflict with indigenous peoples in the Pampas and Patagonia, particularly the Mapuche people who had resisted European and colonization and influence all the way through to the 1870s. Oh. Like they're still living 
they're they're not uncontacted people, no, but they're ungive a shit people. <laughs> like <laughs> they're they're just sticking to their hunter gatherer ways. They don't, as far as I know, they don't acknowledge the Buenos Aires government. During Roca's time in office, he would launch his conquest of the desert, as it was known. Oh, no. Where he violently put down Mapuche resistance and took federal control of both Patagonia and the Pampas. Many sources still strangely cast this as a brilliant and innovative move, despite the fact that (laughs) mass murder of indigenous people was certainly nothing new at the time. And Chile was launching a parallel campaign down their side of the Andes at the exact same fucking time. Don't do that. Okay. Jeez. Don't take credit for it. Okay. So it was during this period that uh, the new massive expansion of agriculture into the Pampas and Patagonia made Argentina a force for international trade and the modernizing of the country's infrastructure sped up significantly. But like at the expense of the indigenous of genocide, people who yeah, were killed. Absolutely. Okay. I do not say this to defend Roca no, no, only to continue I'm not saying the history you are. of the country. I'm just I'm just clarifying that that's, that's what was happening. Yes. All right. Cool. Cool. The exact borders between Argentina and Chile would be worked out in 1881, with Chile gaining the complete Pacific coast and Argentina the complete Atlantic coast. Uh, Roca's government would end up issuing way too much currency, and an inflation crisis followed his time in office that basically led to a situation where no one who took office could get popular for a few years. (laughs) The fucking economy was so in the trash that, like... You looked bad no matter what you did. Uh, well, we saw that even in 2008. Oh, absolutely. No one looked good then. Either. <laughs> uh, that being said, though, Roca's conservative party would stay in power through the system he had implemented that had a president announce their successor. Pretty easy to stay in power. Yeah. <laughs> when you can do that. However, and it will be me again. <laughs> This, uh, well, I think you couldn't name yourself. Oh, you I think have that to was na- the one okay. rule. Okay, okay. <laughs> Just that seems, yeah, that'd be a big loophole. Anyway, yep. This lack of strong leadership inspired a popular movement for electoral reform that would result in the presidency of Roque Sainz Pena. Uh, Pena started the process, but he died not too long into his presidency. So he personally didn't get that far into the electoral reform process, but it starts happening. And the first Argentine president elected by popular vote would be Hippolito Irigoyen in 1916. Uh, Irigoyen was a popular president, and I, I do not say this to say he was necessarily a good guy, but he was definitely an incredibly astute politician. Like, he knew how to seize power for his party and keep hold of it. You can have it both ways. The candidate he supported in 1922 won as a result of his support, but then started to veer away from Irigoyen's policy platform. So Irigoyen would run again in 1928 and win in a 2-to-1 landslide. However, 1929 would see the onset of the Great Depression, This would devastate Argentina's economy as the international trade slowed to a standstill from the U.S. Irigoyen would be expelled from office by his military in 1930, led by a guy named General José Félix Uruburu, uh, and later by 
Agustin Pedro Justo, who, according to one of my sources, rose to power with only limited electoral fraud, <laughs> which was a line that I just loved so much. It's okay if it's just limited electoral fraud. What you want to avoid is major electoral major fraud. Major electoral fraud is where you get into trouble. Take note, everybody. <laughs> So the depression would see Argentina's economy relying really heavily on British uh, investors and exports to England, though their situation started to improve towards the end of the 30s. Argentina declared itself neutral in World War II and would remain neutral after Pearl Harbor when a lot of Latin American countries declared behind America. Mm -hmm. Uh, in 1943, the government was again overthrown by the military, though they didn't immediately settle on a leader and a number were chosen and then taken out of office before they settled on the famous Colonel Juan Domingo Perón. During Perón's vice presidency, Argentina would finally declare war on Germany, a requirement for Argentina to gain admittance to the UN, which they then did. Mm. What year was that? Uh, 1944, 45. So like right at the end. Right at the end. Yeah. In 1944, he would meet, uh, actress Eva Duarte, who he he would marry in 1945. She is better known, obviously, as Eva Perón. Is now when we should sing Don't Cry For Me, Argentina? I I don't know that it is. Okay. Is there ever a good time for us to sing Don't Cry For Me, Argentina? I don't know that there is. Okay. We'll talk about Evita a bit later. Just when we talk about the food or something off topic, I fucking hate that show. I know. I don't like it either, <laughs> but I like how riled up you get when I bring it up. So so Eva Duarte was from a poor village in the Pampas and had moved to Buenos Aires to have a shot at becoming a star. She would become an icon in Argentina for her style and for her story of her rise from poverty and is still widely admired in the country today. In fact, when Roca was taken off the banknote, he was replaced by Eva Perón. Oh, okay. But she wasn't herself a politician. No. No, 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 she was not. Um, She was at one point offered the vice presidency Mm -hmm. and was prepared to accept it until the military was like, fucking don't do that. Uh, And then she did. Okay. (laughs) Knows how to take a hint. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Juan Perón's ideology is uh, uh, a really popular one to this day, though his legacy has been quite controversial at times. After World War II, he would open secret lines of communication and transport through Spain and Italy, encouraging Nazis to flee through those countries to Latin America Mm. and particularly to Argentina, where they would be safe. Argentina became a popular location for Nazi hunters after the war. It took, I would say, I, I didn't write these numbers down, but I think more than three times as many... Nazi war criminals escaping prosecution as any other wow. South American nation. That's a bold move to just be like, Nazis, come here. Yeah. So Argentina <laughs> also became a popular location post-war for Nazi hunters. That makes sense. And Israeli secret police would even arrest Holocaust architect Adolf Eichmann outside of Buenos Aires, where he had been living and working at a car factory, I believe. Okay. Uh, 
Ava would die in 1952, not long after helping Juan win the 1951 election. Pretty soon after her death, his government would shift noticeably to the right, and their popularity would begin to drop, culminating in Perón being overthrown by General Eduardo Lenardi. Uh, he would flee the country for a number of years, but we have not seen the end yet of our friend Juan Perón. There's a lot of um, uh, leaders getting overthrown yes. in this story. A lot of generals. Yes, the transfer of power is an aggressive one. It is. Yeah. Almost always yeah. throughout this history. Yeah. So Lenardi's government, as is so often the case when an unpopular person gets ousted like that, uh, dedicated itself to undoing everything Perón had done in the country, <laughs> notably trying to take a lot of power away from the labor unions that Perón had strengthened a lot during his time in office. Okay. So people who follow Perón's ideology are known popularly as Peronists. So that's that's the word we're going to use. Kay. I just want you to know what that word means. Cool. So they were banned from the government Peronists during this time, uh, but they still had a lot of popular sway. Mm -hmm. They would eventually take control of the labor unions and would use this power to support another coup in 1966. The military government would see years of violent de demonstrations until the election of Hector J. Campora, who seemingly was elected to president purely to bring Juan Perón back into the country oh. and make him president again. <laughs> okay. So during his time in exile, Perón had uh, remarried a woman who, like, some sources went off on this woman they were like she was a stripper and a prostitute and some sources were like she's a dancer uh, <laughs> maria estela martinez cartez was better known as isabel perón uh he selected her as his vice president and would die uh within a year of ascending to the presidency from a series of heart attacks uh his presidency like his return to the presidency was heavily influenced by a politician by the name of Jope Lopez Rega, who would launch under Perón a number of anti-leftist death squads uh, known as the anti sorry, the Argentine Anti-Communist Alliance or Triple A. Sorry, help me with something for a sec. Normally, the labor unions, normally that's a left thing. Nor well, Perón's no? sort of started out as. Oh, I a, see. A populist and then leader drifted and then on over. Drifted right after Ava's death and okay. is drifting way further right under the influence of hope of uh of Rega. That's why I bring up Rega here. Okay, I understand. Thank you. So after Perón's death in 74, Isabel Perón would inherit the presidency and would become the world's first female president huh. in the July in July of 1974. Good for her, but was she a terrible person? Um she wasn't great, as okay. far as I can tell. We're okay. not going to get too far into uh, Isabel Perón's rule. Uh, but just for comparison, the world's first elected female president was... Uh, I don't know if we mentioned this, actually, in your episode on them. Mm -hmm. The world's first elected female president was Vigdis Finnbogadottir of Iceland oh, yeah, in I think, 1980. I think I did mention her briefly in the fun facts. Okay. Because she's also, I think, one of the, f the first... Gay prime minister? Oh, interesting. I think. Okay. I think. That's progressive as hell. It, very. In 1980? Um, Goddamn. 
Yeah, I think so. Well, I'll maybe double check that also at the uh, break because I'm pretty sure I mentioned. And, and also the world's first female prime minister was Siri Mavo Bandara Naik of Sri Lanka in 1960. Wow. Yeah. And they uh, did way better than us. We only had Kim Campbell. Yeah. For like a minute. Anyway. But uh, <laughs> Isabel... Well, Perón's rule had become, Juan Perón's rule, that is, had become increasingly popular since his return to office. And Perón, uh, Isabel Perón, would eventually be forced to dismiss López Rega from his post. Uh, it was probably, though, too late. The damage was done and she would be removed from office by the government. She is still alive and living in exile in Spain. Uh, the Argentine court requested extradition to try her for human rights abuses in 2017, but were refused by Spain. Uh, the military would place a guy named General Jorge Rafael Videla in office, and he would immediately embark on what he called the process of national reorganization. It has since come to be known as the Dirty War. Oh, excellent. Videla originally saw popular support for the attacks he made on leftists who were seen by many in the country as guerrilla terrorists. Similar to uh, what we saw in Paraguay, though, over time the people started to turn against it as they started to see the enormity of what Videla was doing. And really we can see this as the extension of what Raga was doing with the AAA. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not so different, but... Videla's government would open secret detention camps where people were disappeared and tortured. Weekly vigils to bring international attention to the desaparecidos or disappeared persons mm -hmm. would begin in the late 1970s and continued happening in the square in front of the, the national building until 2006. What? That's like just now. Like way past the end of the dirty war, but like these are vigils for the victims of it. Like wow. the much of the popular dissent though was silenced by the strong secret police of this period. The dirty war continued until 1983 and estimates place the death toll from 10 to 30,000 people. Ugh. Many of the victims were seized by the government and never heard from again, never to be given a proper burial, funeral or acknowledgement. It is one of the defining events in Argentine history and it would be looking into like a lot of the stuff I saw and like just just in the fun facts it's not necessarily all going to come up but uh it it had a profound effect on the nation I can imagine so Ugh. as a result of this long and appropriately named dirty, dirty war dirty war <laughs> The military rule is unpopular mm -hmm. and the economy is again floundering in the, the early 1980s. So uh, General Leopoldo Galtieri would step into the presidency in 1981 and he had an idea of how he could maybe kill two birds with one stone, get some popularity back and maybe make a bit of money in the process. So he would begin pressuring the British government to surrender the Falkland Islands in February of 1982. And when that did not work, he invaded the islands in April of 82. The British garrison on the Falklands was not well defended, just 
on the day to day. So the fault or the Argentine military did originally take it quite easily. However, that then leads to a period where like the British Navy is sailing there. Yep, it would. And the Argentine military is entirely made up of like old World War Two ships and planes that they bought from the U.S. So there's a period as the Navy is sailing towards Argentina and sort of destroying any bit of the Argentine Navy they encounter on the way, where as far as I can tell, the British are going, are, are you sure? Are you sure? And Argentina, Galtieri is just like, yep, we're sure. <laughs> That's not something you say to the British Navy, I feel. Yeah, so the British Navy obviously quickly takes the upper hand in the naval conflict, and all Argentine ships get kept in port except for a single submarine that actually put up, uh, from what I could see, quite an admirable fight against the British. I don't think it did that much on its own, but I think it, like really ruined a couple British people's days and came quite close to sinking a number of ships. There's a movie in that somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely there is. <laughs> so the the planes that the Argentine military had purchased from the US in World War II are basically able to fly to the Falkland Islands and back on a full tank of gas. Right. So with the conflict happening at the Falkland Islands, their planes can only hit the British Navy when the British Navy is in attack position. If they just pull back a bit to, like, recover their forces, the Argentine planes can't hit them. Even if they are in attack position, the Argentine planes can make one single pass before they have to return to the oh, mainland no, they and have refuel. to, like, go and drop and go home. Yeah. So, okay, that sucks. Despite the insanely stacked deck against them, the Argentine military puts up a pretty admirable fight okay. against the overwhelming odds yeah. here. But the the British Navy eventually manages to make a landing on the Falkland Islands, where they are met with five thousand Argentine troops, who do manage, in their to their credit, to hold the small islands against British advancement for several days before being overwhelmed when the British took the main port. Mm. The war would be surrendered on June 4th of 19... Sorry, June 14th of 1982. Galtieri would resign as president on the 17th. Galtieri's interim replacement, uh, General Reynaldo Bignone, would wrap up the activities of the Dirty War and do what he could in his brief interim presidency to cover up mm. as much of the Dirty War as he could. Mm. However, I finally get to tell you the name of a head of state whose name doesn't start with general or colonel. Cool. What is it? Raul Alfonsine would win the democratic election as head of the Radical Civic Union in 1983. And to Alfonsine's credit, one of his first acts as president was to announce his intention to prosecute the architects of the dirty war, eventually convicting both Videla and Galtieri in these proceedings. Okay. That's something. Alfonsine's presidency, however, was not popular with the military, obviously. Clearly, yes. So they took it over? Yeah, they had, <laughs> well, they had hundreds of their personnel prosecuted during this period. Yeah. 
uh, but he did receive popular support from the middle class. Alphonsine would serve his whole term, credit to the Argentinians, uh, and would be succeeded by the Peronist Carlos Carlos Menem, who would unfortunately pardon many of those convicted by Alphonsine in the dirty war proceedings, Mm. Galtieri included. Well... That is where I'm going to cut off our history for the day. Oh. Uh, there is certainly more to be said, uh, but oh, we are yeah. we are getting in as it is to modern events, and I'm gonna I'm gonna call it there. It's hard to know when to stop. You have to just kind of go on your instincts. Yeah, I didn't um, want to do another half hour about like 1983 the 90s. to now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I I understand. Okay, well that was very interesting. Um, it's it's a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster. Eh? I learned a lot, so many things. They, they, Aaron, they teach us nothing in school. Literally nothing. They're like, here's one piece of information. Time is limited. Pass your exam. I'm All right, so bye, everyone. excited for like the first time that like we've done this podcast and there's a big piece of international news. Like we've covered all the countries and a piece of big international news comes out. I'm going to understand the shit out of that news. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're going to be able to go to dinner parties and people will be like, Oh, this is the country I visited. It'll be like, Oh, we know exactly where that is. They'll be like, you do. And we'll be like, yes, you bet we do. (laughs) Would you like to hear some fun facts? Let's talk about some fun facts. Yeah, sounds so, good. Uh, I've got some famous people. Cool. Uh, one of whom is having a bit of a moment right now, mm-hmm. so I'm going to start with her. Stephanie Beatriz was born in Argentina in oh. 1981 to a Colombian father and a Bolivian mother. That's so cool. I assumed she was from the States, but... Yeah. Nice. Well, they would move to Texas when she was two. Okay. Her breakout role was as playing Rosa Diaz on Brooklyn Nine-Nine yeah. for eight seasons. She's my favorite on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> and most recently, she voiced the protagonist Mirabelle in the Disney movie Encanto set in Colombia. That we saw like two days ago. Yeah, we did <laughs> just watch it. Uh... Next up, we've got Gustavo Santolala, who is one of my absolute favorite film composers. Uh, he is an Argentine film composer best known for his work. Well, recently, he's best known for his work on the score in both games in The Last of Us series, as well ha- as his TV themes for Narcos Mexico, uh, Jane the Virgin, and Making a Murderer. He would gain his ultimate claim to fame uh, winning back-to-back Oscars for Best Original Score in 2005 and 2006 for Brokeback Mountain, possibly my favorite movie score movie. of all time. The score is yes so beautiful. <laughs> I can play like half of it on the guitar. It's so great. Cool. I love it. Uh, and in 2006 for Babel. Um, Next up, we've got Jorge Luis Borges, who I think every single South American nation we've covered has had a quote somewhere in the sources from Borges. He just he had something to say about everything. Yeah, uh, he is one of the most widely read and translated writers in Spanish language literature and was just such an outspoken political figure throughout his whole life against Peronism, against fascism, against communism, against the military government, and not least against the Nobel Committee for never awarding him the prize that he almost certainly deserved. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Next up, uh, this one's going to have a bit of a twist ending. I I hope you're not going to see this one coming. So, uh, 
Jorge Mario Bergoglio was born in 1936 in Buenos Aires to a family of Italian immigrants in the country. Uh, he worked in his early life for several years in Argentina as a janitor and nightclub bouncer before falling severely ill from pneumonia. After his recovery, he found himself deeply moved when a priest invited him into confession and would end up joining the Jesuit order. After a slight conflict with the Jesuit leadership, he would become Bishop of Buenos Aires in 1992 and would end up being named a cardinal by Pope John Paul II. In 2013, Bergoglio would be named Pope Francis, an office he holds until this day. Francis is the first Jesuit pope, the first pope from the Americas, the first pope from the Southern Hemisphere, and the first non-European pope since the 8th century. Wow. I thought also that all the popes were European, so at least I wasn't yeah, wrong in my there assumption. There was a Syrian pope in the 7th century. I was reading okay. up on him a little bit, just a fun side note there. Bonus episode on popes? There's Everyone should check out... Um, Oh, I'll I'll look up the name of the podcast on the break. There's one that that ranks all the popes. Cool. It's fantastic. Cool. That sounds Pontifacts. great. Pontifacts. Nice. Pontifacts <laughs> is what it's called. Like Totalis Rankium kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Nice. So Ernesto Guevara, better known as Shea, was an Argentine revolutionary born in Rosario in 1928. He would go on to be one of the leaders of the Cuban Revolution and an important figure in the early government afterwards. Obviously, we've all seen Che Guevara t-shirts and shit. Uh, we will dive a whole lot deeper into our episode on Sh or into Che in our episode on Cuba, but he was born in Argentina. Interesting. After Cuba, uh, Che would attempt to ignite several other revolutions across the world, traveling to Africa and then traveling back to South America to work in Bolivia, where he would be captured and executed by the CIA. Mm. Uh, next up. We've got two more famous people, and they're more fun than that. <laughs> uh, so Argentina is home to two of the greatest football players in the history of the sport. Football, soccer, football? Football, soccer, yes. Diego Maradona was an Argentine footballer who is one of the most celebrated players in the history of the game. He was famous for his creativity with the ball, something he managed through a low center of gravity as he stood only five foot five. Oh, he's little. He's little. Um, he would captain Argentina to, to their second of two World Cup victories in 1984, uh, participating in a quarterfinals game against England that became legendary for two reasons. Uh, two very different reasons. Is one of them about the Falklands? No. Well, kind of. <laughs> kind of. Okay. Actually. <laughs> so in the second half of the game, Maradona scored a goal illegally with his hand that put Argentina up one nothing over England. Okay. This can be seen quite clearly on tape, but the goal was awarded and Argentina went on to victory. Mm. The Argentine people would see it as an act of symbolic victory over a nation that had completely thrashed their military two years earlier in yeah. the Falklands. A journalist would r later write the incredible quote, <laughs> the entire nation still praises the most blatant act of cheating ever caught on tape because Argentines are humans and humans are hypocrites. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great quote. In, uh, in his 
like post-retirement autobiography mm. Maradona wrote like I can finally say what I could never say all those years that uh this this event was known as the hand of God goal mm-hmm. uh so he wrote I can finally say it was not the hand of God it was the hand of Maradona <laughs> I very That's much great. get the impression he's one of those athletes who like fame really went to his head and mm. he talked about himself in the third person and shit <laughs> It's still a good story, though. So that's that's the infamous part of that game. Okay. Only four minutes later, Maradona went up alone against four English defenders, faking them out, and then the goalie ag- across 60 yards of field, putting the team up 2 nothing with another goal. In 2002, this dash was voted the goal of the century and is popularly seen as the greatest individual play in the history of professional football. Maradona would later state that he never could have pulled it off against any other team because the other teams were too physical and the English team was, quote, the noblest in the world. (laughs) I did. I I had heard Maradona's name, uh, but I wasn't familiar with the whole Hand of God story. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my good friends is an English guy, big football fan, and I messaged him. Uh, you remember how excited he got when the whole Euro thing was happening yeah. a while back and, and how bummed he was when they lost. Yep. And uh, <laughs> I, I messaged him to say, I've just been learning about Maradona and the hand of God for the podcast. Like, I know it was, you know, a decade or so before you were born, but do you have a take on it? And he wrote back, lol, fuck Maradona and fuck the hand of God. <laughs> <laughs> So, just for a British perspective on the hand of God. I'm going to ask my grandpa about it, maybe. Yeah, definitely do. Because he watched some football, and he's probably at least familiar with the idea. I think it's the closest England has come to the World Cup in some time. Mm, Okay. Okay. Maybe, maybe, or the closest they had come to the World Cup in some time. Maybe they've come closer since. I don't follow football. Uh, Next up, however, we've got Lionel Messi, born in Rosario, Argentina in 1987, is another one of the greatest football players in the history of the world. Uh, So the Ballon d'Or is an award that is given to the best player across all European professional leagues. Like all of Europe is is included in the voting for this award. Messi has won the award a record seven times receiving an additional five second place finishes and one third place finish for 10 years from 2008 to 2017. Not a single person won the award other than Messi and Cristiano (laughs) Ronaldo. He is also even now in 2022, the reigning champion of the Ballon d'Or trophy. Uh, He played his entire career for Barcelona until 2021. He now plays for Paris Saint-Germain. He has been captain of the Argentine international team since 2011, captaining the team to a second place finish in 2014 against Germany, where he received the most valuable player trophy, and then captaining the team again in 2018, where they were eliminated in France in the second round. Mm. And they might have done better in 2018, but they had lost uh, their their seed position had been hurt by a crushing loss to Croatia in Mm. the qualifying round, uh, whose captain, Luka Modric, would go on to win MVP at that year's tournament and Croatia would be runners up themselves. 
So that's all our famous people. I've got a couple more fun facts, and then we can get into the anthem. Or talk about how much Avita sucks, or whatever. (laughs) So, El Apostol is a lost film from 1917 that is considered to be the world's first animated feature film. It was made 20 full years before Snow White, the first traditionally animated feature film. The film uses, El Apostol, that is, uses uh, cutout stop motion animation and tells a satirical story about President Hippolyto Irigoyen. Okay. That's so interesting. Yeah. But we can't see it anywhere. No, it is lost. it is a lost film. That's I believe too bad. the studio burned down. Oh, that I, sucks. I didn't dive too deep into it, but I think I glossed like skimmed over that yeah. sentence. Okay. Uh in 1892, there was I didn't write down where this was. It was in Argentina, okay? <laughs> <laughs> in 1892, there was a brutal murder of two children that police could not find any leads on. So a local detective had the idea to take a bloody fingerprint off of a doorknob at the scene of the crime. This is the first recorded use of fingerprinting to identify a person in history and did convict the children's mother for having murdered murdered them. Wow. That's cool. I never thought about where fingerprinting came from. Yeah. And of course it came from bloody fingers. Of course it did. But it's so obvious now. Like <laughs> It's just that now we spend so much time being like, oh, there's going to be fingerprints. We got to cover all that stuff up. Yeah. Huh. So the it's national... sucks for those kids, though. Yeah. <laughs> the national drink of Argentina is yerba mate, and that's a tea that is often drunk from hallowed, hollowed out gourds uh, with a straw known as a bombilla. And the, the bombilla straw, I actually used to have one, uh, has a like strainer at the bottom of it. So you don't put in a tea bag. You just toss your leaves in loose and then sip it through a strainer straw. Interesting. Yeah. Isn't that hot though? Yeah, it is hot. What's the straw made of? Metal. At least the one I used. It takes some getting used to. Yeah, I can imagine. Isn't there something about how you're not supposed to drink hot liquids through plastic straws because it like melts a little bit into the liquid and then you... Probably, I don't know. microplastics in your... Anyway. I, I don't drink much through straws really. No, we have the metal ones now. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, the the tango, as we know it, originally rose to popularity in Argentina and Uruguay. Based off of the Andalusian tango, which was a solo dance, uh, the Argentinian tango became really popular among the lower classes across Buenos Aires and Montevideo in the mid-1800s and spread across Latin America from there. It would reach the mainstream in New York and Paris in the 1910s. So even though ballroom dancing has lost a lot of its cultural relevance, obviously Mm -hmm. the tango is still easily one of the most popular and recognizable forms of ballroom dance. Yes, that's true. So that's what I've got for fun facts. Cool. Uh, Yeah. We're going to take a break now and we are going to listen to Himno Nacional Argentine. Great.
god. <laughs> what an anthem. This I love is, it so much. This is really a special one. It's so much fun. Yes, and I think, too, like, a lot of these, when we listen to them and we talk to them, I say things like, you know, I like the music in the scheme of national anthems. Yeah, this is just genuinely a good piece a of music. great fucking time. Yeah. 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 So before we get into the history, let's touch a little bit on the food we made this week. Food uh, you made this I week. I made this week. Uh, <laughs> I decided to do an Argentinian dessert. Uh, so I made alfajores, which are a cookie. The, the, process of making the cookie is not really similar to shortbread uh at least in my opinion but uh it's a lot the, of cornstarch it's a lot of corn it's more <laughs> cornstarch than flour at yeah. least the recipe i used um the the result though is very similar to shortbread yes uh very light buttery uh lightly sweet and then they are sandwich cookies so it's it's often uh jam spread between them or dolce de leche which is what i used uh if you're not familiar with dolce de leche, it translates roughly to milk jam. Uh, essentially, you you caramelize some sweetened condensed milk, so it's like a, a nice golden brown. It's and, so good. Oh, it's so good. So I used that, and then I dusted the cookies in powdered sugar and rolled the edges in coconut. It was great. Uh, yeah, they're so good. I cannot say enough. I mean, I'm already like... A, a big Dolce de Leche stand. So that was that was already covered. Yeah. But these cookies are fantastic. I highly recommend you use this recipe and make some for yourself. They are so good. Yeah, very good. Um, I looked up on the break the, the thing I said about the Prime Minister from Iceland. Okay, yes. What I actually said, I didn't mention the first female okay. Prime Minister. What I did talk about was the world's first openly gay Prime Minister, Johanna... Siguar daughter. Okay. So who, they... Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. N- that was it. Okay. Just that I, I was confusing the two. I turned them into one person. Yeah, and they, they are, also had, I they're guess... They're different people. The world's first elected female prime minister in 1980. Yes, she's from a little bit more recently, um, early 2000s. Cool. It was her. Uh, so into the history of the anthem then. Mm. Uh, the first anthem of Argentina was written when it was still the United Provinces of the Rio Plata. Okay. Uh, and that was a song known as the Patriotic March with lyrics by Esteban de Luca and music by Blas Pereira. Mm. Uh, Patriotic March was a pro-Spain anthem, however, so <laughs> it uh, did not remain popular for no, very long. that gets awkward real quick. Yeah, yeah. especially, <laughs> like, I mean, the the United Provinces were originally founded as a sort of, we're gonna keep controlling this until Ferdinand reclaims the throne, mm-hmm. but it quickly, like, independence movements gained traction, so this pro-Spain anthem wasn't gonna stick. Yeah. So in 1812, a second anthem was commissioned, and this one had lyrics by a guy named Caetano Rodriguez, and also music by Blas Pereira. Okay. When this proved unpopular again, a third poem was commissioned, and a poem by a lawyer named Vicente Lopez y Planes was chosen to be the anthem, and set to music by, you guessed it, <laughs> Blas Pereira. Is, do we know at all why the second version wasn't popular? Not really. Okay. Or I didn't dive into it that deep because it's not the anthem we're talking about today. That's totally fair. I didn't know if it came up. So you, 
at the time that uh, this third anthem was written, use of the word Argentina was really only common among sort of the educated elite of the country. And it was this piece that really brought it to the mainstream popularity. So this piece. That's neat. Yeah. Had a hand in how the country actually got named, which is pretty sick, I think. Because normally, like, it's the other way around. You have a name for your country and then you make up your anthem afterwards. Neat. So the piece was originally known as Cancion Patriotica Nacional, or National Patriotic Song. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a popular arrangement in 1848 would publish it as Himno Nacional Argentino, uh, and that name has stuck. So of the people who wrote it, I know... Very little about Blas Pereira, other than that he wrote all three anthems <laughs> and married one of his students who was 15 years old and an orphan. Okay. Okay. That's straight up all I know about Blas Pereira. That's a Wikipedia page right there. It's like three sentences <laughs> long. It's great. Uh, Vicente Lopez Planas, however, we know a bit more about him. He was a lawyer who would later transition into politics and... In the interim that led into Manuel Dorego's time in office, he was actually the interim president, Mm. like 14 years after he had written the anthem, which is kind of cool. When Dorego was executed at the end of the war with Brazil, as we remember, uh, Lopez was exiled to Uruguay. Mm. He would later be brought back into the country by Juan Manuel de Rosas, uh, where he served for several years as a member of the Tribunal of Justice. Uh, So the song became popular throughout Latin America very quickly, with different versions springing up across the continent as it gained popularity until official arrangements were commissioned in 1860. It was confirmed as the official state anthem, like with an official version and everything in 1944, and I believe that was the arrangement commissioned in 1860. That was confirmed. Uh, a lot, as we saw when we were listening to the anthems, a lot of the original text has been abandoned over time. And that's really just as the Argentine people have stopped hating Spain so much. Yeah. And a lot of <laughs> Spanish people have moved to Argentini- to Argentina. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, th- it's, it's basically like five stanzas of fuck those Spanish tyrants. Yeah. And then the two stanzas we held on to. Yeah. Yeah. Which... They're awesome stanzas. The poetry and, yeah, is remarkable. We're going to talk about them in the lyrics section at least a little bit. Um, but yeah, most of the original text has been abandoned. And the version I'll link to that is the full version of the anthem is straight up 26 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, the Argentine anthem is widely used at all official events. Uh, I believe it is required to be used at all government events. Many TV stations will even play it before shutting down their broadcasts at night. Oh, wow. Uh, so there was for a time a law against making changes to that official arrangement in cover versions. Okay. But there was a, a popular Argentine rock musician by the name of Charlie Garcia and he rose to popularity in the 70s as sort of one of the the founders of the Argentinian rock scene as a member of two different bands, uh, Sui Generic and, uh, sorry, Sui Generis and uh, Seru Geran. I think my, my autocorrect got to that one. <laughs> uh, but uh, he went solo eventually. And in the 90s, he released an album called Cheap Philosophy and Rubber Shoes uh, that contained... 
a rock version of the anthem, and it was briefly banned by the country before a judge ruled in his favor, opening the door for future cover versions of his president. Precedent. Eh. Uh, so You've been talking for a long time. I have. Uh, <laughs> so I, I love Charlie Garcia's version. I think it's so cool. That was great. And I was glad, as you said, it wasn't just like uh, Jimi Hendrix like rip off try again yeah it's its like, own it's, thing it's a genuinely reverent cover in its own yeah. way too like, i really liked it i i can't imagine banning that in the 90s when there's already been a rock scene in the country for 20 years yeah. like that only seems like a cool thing to have happen which i guess is how most of the populace felt to be fair i think the way the the ruling went and everything that has to be the general consensus was that this is cool we should keep it yeah yeah and then just a, a last little note about the history of the anthem. It mm. is used in a 1985 Argentine film called The Official Story. And this movie follows a family who has illegally adopted a daughter and they start to come to the realization that she might be the biological child of one of the people disappeared in the dirty war. Oh, uh, it would win the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film that year, and the anthem is featured quite prominently in it. I would kind of like to see that. Yeah, I thought it sounded fantastic, so I might look into that as well. But that's that's what I have for the history. That's not bad, actually. Yeah, it's there's, there's some meat on those bones, yep. so we should take a second then and put together some ratings for this that sounds good i'm excited to talk about the lyrics in this one. Oh my god let's get into it because these lyrics are fucking incredible we complain a lot about lack of specificity and that's not the problem no. here like not even, even close even in the short version even in the short there's version enough for me to be happy with and then the long version is is like i said an operetta <laughs> unto itself it's it's incredible every fucking province in the country gets a shout out yeah i think it's a really like we haven't quite seen like this before this no. kind of a structure where you know and you get a call out and you get a call out and you get a call out it's great and the the symbolism is oh my god i just the dead inca are shaken and yeah, in their bones that one, the ardor revives that like, really stood out to me too um don't you see them devouring as wild animals all people who surrender to them? Like, the political conviction yeah. of this anthem is incredible to me. But we shouldn't get too in the weeds on these lyrics that were abandoned, as far as I can tell, well over a century ago. I'm in the weeds. I've been lost. <laughs> <laughs> we should focus on the modern lyrics. Yes, you're right. You're right. Okay. So I think that even, even though it's shorter... I don't know. It's not nothing. This it's, like there's still th like I I love that that refrain. The free people of the world reply to the great Argentine yeah. people hail. And and how do you top that final stanza as a closer? Like let us live crowned in glory, or let us swear to die with glory. It's very poetic. Someone has clearly like. Thought about their poetic devices and, yes, and like rhetorical structure. And definitely some thought has been given to the translation as well. Like this was not good plugged point. into Google Translate. No, this it was, was not. This was made consciously. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, I mean, it's great for us because yeah. I feel like we can talk about it and feel better than sometimes where it's like, no, no, no. Maybe in the translation, something weird happened there. Uh, But yeah, I, I. 
I can't say enough good things about this lyric. This is a, a solid 10 out of 10, only because I feel it would be unfair to award these lyrics the 20 out of 10 that I truly want to give them. <laughs> yeah, we don't have room, unfortunately, to give more than 10. But I honestly, I agree with you. I think 10 out of 10 is absolutely fair. Let's uh, get into the music a bit, which... Now that I've given a hard 10 to the lyrics, I truly do think the music is this anthem's greatest strength. The sheer amount of variety in this melody, the the number of places it goes, and the way these incredible instrumental breaks are like baked into the whole thing. It's so much fun. It's, it's so lot inspiring. Of fun. I want to like dance a little bit when I listen to it. It hits every possible note that you could want an anthem to hit and you know what in this uh i i didn't mention this in lyrics but at least in the short version there is no god there's no god that's true that's unusual all right um, are you going 10 again I, I'm going 10 again. Like I said, I, I gave 10 to the lyrics, but I think the music is where the real strength of this anthem lies. It is so dynamic and exciting and positive. It's very positive. Um, yeah, okay, so yeah, here's, I'm going another hard 10 here. Here's my dilemma a little bit. Okay. Um, like, I feel like for variety's sake, I should give it nine, but I can't find anything to complain about. So You give it whatever's in your heart. All right. I'm going to give it 10 also. The background story is good. It it's, is good. It's not going to be a hard 10 from me. No, I wish we knew. Excuse me. I wish we knew a little bit more as I usually do. And I wish we knew more about, I don't know, the transition between that second version and the. Yes. And the that's final. part of that's probably on me. I could have done some more no, research it, there. It's okay. It happens to all of us sometimes. <laughs> But uh, I thought it was interesting that it it its popularity exploded so quickly that they had to start being like, well, no, no, we need to get a handle on yeah. this before the <laughs> lyrics get out of control. I love the idea of everyone just running around being like, but I have an idea. I have an idea. I came up with this thing. Let's do it my way. I love this weird connection of Blas Pereira, who seemingly did nothing but write national anthems yeah. in his whole life. yeah. Is he alive still? Probably not. No, no, no. Okay, okay. Long dead. Kay. Yeah. The, this anthem was written like 1813. Right, yeah. yeah, okay. Okay, yes, long dead. <laughs> <laughs> I I love the story of Charlie Garcia and, yes. and that he managed to create a legal precedent for new versions of the anthem being created. It's a very rich story still. I think I'm going to go eight for this. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to join you there. Cool. Historical significance, I mean, if we were to rate the full lyrics, this would be another hard 10. But I think, for fairness sake... We have to focus we on the modern ones. We have to focus on the modern ones. And I, right. am, I am going to give, you know, an extra bump in the points for the full ones, but I'm not just going to examine the anthem on the strength of the operetta that was written. Um... But that being said, I do still think there's some great stuff going on in these lyrics. I, I love that this usage is what established 
Argentine as like a popular mainstream thing. Yeah, I like also that they mention the United Provinces of the South. Yeah. It's a nice touch. I think probably, I don't know, this is probably a seven for me. Yeah, I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go seven point five just uh, just to give it that extra little bump for how fucking amazing the full <laughs> version is. Yeah, and X Factor. This has X Factor. Oh, it's got X Factor out the ass, and I honestly don't know what possible reason I could come up with to not give this another hard. 10. Yeah, that's kind of where I was at. This is too. I can't justify it otherwise. My favorite anthem we have looked at personally like i i am blown away at how great this is at how much story there is at how exciting the music is at how exciting the performances can be as mm-hmm. we see with that charlie garcia version I, i'm i i can't not give this a 10 that's fine give it a 10 i'm gonna give it a 10 too So let's take a moment and tally up the scores to see what is almost certainly the new leader. With a colossal score of 90.5 out of 100, we now have a tie for first place between Argentina and Moldova. Okay. And you know what? I I can live with that. Yeah. I think Moldova was really good too. Yeah, and I do think Eric's presence maybe dragged it up a little bit from where we were sitting, but uh, I I don't think it didn't deserve it. In no respect, I do think Moldova deserves the place it got. And it's what we're doing by inviting guests, anyways. Exactly, is opening yeah. it up for that to potentially happen. <laughs> so we gotta just roll with it. But uh, yeah, I I really think this deserves its spot at the top of the list. An, yeah. an absolutely spectacular anthem. I can't believe it was a perfect tie like that. That's yeah, that's I didn't nuts. think it was gonna okay. be. But uh, all right, let's roll the dice then and see what's up for next time. Let's do it. I've got number 153. 153 gives you, if I can pronounce this, the Sarwi Arab Democratic Republic. Okay. That's maybe the first country we're covering here that I literally have never heard of, unless you're just pronouncing something I've heard of really weird. I don't know. You can read it if you want. Yeah, I've never heard of this. Yeah, okay. me, me neither. Cool. I have no idea where it is, okay. and I am not going to make any guesses as to where it is. <laughs> That's probably wise. Um, join us next week, where I will talk about Spain, or at least start talking about Spain. Yeah, I'm going to guess um, I've probably got a couple weeks to start learning I about think, mine. I think you do. I think you do. And then in two weeks, we will talk about the Sahri Arab Democratic Republic that I am almost certainly butchering the pronunciation of. Thanks for joining us, folks. Don't watch Evita this week. Did we get something very wrong? 
did we skip an entire part of the story that's worth mentioning? That's very likely, and we'd love to hear the correct version. Please tweet us at IAOUC Podcast or send us an email at inallofuscommandpodcast at gmail.com. We record these episodes a bit in advance, so you may not hear a correction right away, but we are not too big to admit we are wrong, and it will be corrected.